Good morning, church. Next week, next week is our ministry fair. I want to tell you a little bit about that and make sure you kind of know what you need to know to come next week and be prepared for that and everything. It's going to be a little bit shorter worship time, and it's going to be a little bit shorter preaching time. And then we're going to have a shorter time of worship, shorter time of the Word. And then about 1045-ish, we're going to be um, releasing you. And there will be tables set up throughout this room, going downstairs. And I believe just kind of depending on the response, we'll have tables in the East Wing and perhaps in the living room as well. And all those tables will represent as many of our ministries as possible, as well as our community partner ministries. So Advocates for the Homeless, Choice One, those organizations as well. We hope that they're able to be with us. They're still getting back to us, some of those. We're just going to turn you loose at that time to be able to go around the room, get to talk to the other ministries who are here and all. Perhaps you're in a ministry that is, might not has been a good fit for you. Next week would be a good time for you to be thinking about where would maybe be a better fit for you. If you're not serving at all, the next week is a good time to fix that and be able to find a place where you can step into ministry here as well. And then, um, let me, and just let me tell you also, so what we're going to do is children's ministry is going to go until their regular time. And if you don't want to stay for the ministry fair, then, you know, you need to because your kids are here. You can go downstairs to East Wing and get a bagel, get a cup of coffee and hang out and have your devotions. All right. That'd be great, wouldn't it? All right. That's kind of the morning. In the weeks that follow up from that, you know, we'll be, you know, you can be following up with the ministry leaders, ministry leaders follow up with you and figuring out how to get, make those connections stick for you. Okay. So that's what next week looks like, just so you know. If you have any questions about that, don't hesitate to ask Steve, so he'll be the one to answer all your questions, all right? Open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verses 44, all right? The setting for this passage, uh, you know, if you are familiar with Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church as they had gathered for um, the Passover feast, and the Holy Spirit had just descended And not only that, but then Peter had just preached. And he had just laid out the gospel to this primarily Jewish audience for the first time. So let's start. Let me start in, let me start in verse 41. And then we're going to go down, okay? So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship of the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43. And everyone had a feeling of sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the disciples. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as as one might have needed. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were saved. Now, I want to draw your attention to that a little phrase there in verse 47. And in the New American Standard Bible, it just says, the people held them in high, in high esteem. Now, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. All the people respected them. And then in, past, in, in chapter 5, verse 13, there's a similar statement there where it says the people held them, speaking of the disciples and those who were believers at that time in Jerusalem, that it says there that the people held them in high esteem. Now, let me just ask you a rhetorical question, but it's worthy um, exploring together. 
Do you think the church is respected today? That the people hold them in high esteem? That all the people respect them? Or, let me ask you this. Do you cringe when you say, no, I did that at my church? Or if you even mention in your workplace or in your social gathering, whatever it is, that you go to church, do you cringe just a little bit because of the reaction that you might feel? Have you ever done that before where you've mentioned something about that you, you um, oh, at my church, and then the, the room kind of changes, right? The feel in the room just kind of goes, ooh, because this thought just went through the room. And you know what? Something. Sometimes maybe the thought didn't go through the room, but you thought it yourself and thought they're all thinking, oh, he goes to church. What a hypocrite. What a bigot. I bet he's a racist. I bet he loves Trump. You just, and you think they're just thinking all these things, right? Actually, if people did respect the church today, given the church's behavior, that would be the miracle. Because what happens is, they're not reading in the newspapers. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll give credit here a little bit. I was about to say, they're not reading the newspapers about the things that Christians do, but they're not reading in the newspapers about the things Christians do because the newspapers don't want to cover that. I'll give you that much right there. But what they are reading in the newspaper is another pastor is having an affair. What they are reading in the newspaper is that another church has just dealt badly with a member of their congregation. What they are reading in their newspapers is that there's been another inappropriate relationship in the youth ministry, in the Sunday school ministry. They read about people shooting at each other in the church. Happened here in our community two years ago. They read about money missing from church accounts and it wasn't being used for the hungry and the homeless. No, instead, they read about pastors living in multi-million dollar homes or about a pastor buying a private jet or about a pastor buying his wife a 200,000 Lamborghini. The unfortunate truth is that the world is not speaking of us in glowing terms if they're speaking of us at all. And that is my point. But that's the way the American culture thinks about the church. They're not really even there. And if they're there, they're there because they've attracted bad attention to themselves. The American church is not really an entity within itself that is worthy of real comment that is positive for the most part. There's exceptions to everything. Those are big, those are big blankets, all right? And so unfortunately, when they speak of us, they speak of us in derision and mocking. And because they mock the church, they mock the Lord Jesus as well. Another problem with the American church is that, well, let me just put it like this. How many times have you gone to a wedding reception, a retirement party, a birthday party, I don't know what, and you sit down at a table, and it's assigned seating, so you have to sit there, right? And you sit down at a table where the person sitting next to you or the person sitting across the table does nothing at all but talk about themselves. 
How much do you enjoy that? See, no one really enjoys that, do they? They never ask you where you're from. They never ask you what you do. They never ask you about how many kids you have. They don't do that. Instead, they talk about themselves. That that is what the American church is guilty of as well. We are not too concerned if the Hindus or the Muslims or the Catholics that talk about in the news, but we do want to scream if the evangelicals get called out. Many would be offended by the tax benefit if that gets taken away for benefit, uh, the tax benefit of charitable giving. Many will be offended if we have to begin to pay taxes on our church campuses. In my own humble opinion, the church has conducted itself in our communities for a long time in such a way that we are about us and not about the community we're sitting in. We don't come out and play very often. And if someone comes across our lines, we're the kind of people like the old man who's always screaming, get off my grass! And that's the impression that the community has about us. They don't want to come out and play. They just want to scream at us. There is... um, a church in my hometown called, and it's not there anymore, actually, this is probably good, but the sign at one time for Good Shepherd Church in Lubbock, Texas said, we forgive your trespasses, but if you trespass here, we'll shoot you. <laughs> it is no wonder they're not there, right? A little bit of a mixed message, right? There's a church in South Florida um, down near where Betty lives, and, you know, the sign says, you know, the name of the church, all are welcome, and then there's a large chain link fence that says, no trespassing. And while you understand that because of like just the need to protect yourself from graffiti and all like that, but there's something about that that's very symbolic about the church as a whole. All are welcome, but all are welcome on our terms. See, that's the problem a little bit with church. You know why every single, you just go and check this this week. You just go and check this. I just double dog dare you. You go out and you click on any, well, I'm going to say this and you're going to find the one that doesn't say this. Most churches, all right? If you go to their website, they're going to say, new here? And they're going to say, what to wear? Why do they even address that? Because we've given this impression that if you come to church, you need to look a certain way. You need to dress a certain way. You need to kind of like be like us if you're going to come here. Let me just tell you something. Like, I hope that we've gotten that message out here at Crossing. You don't have to be like us because you're not coming here for us. You're coming here for Jesus, and he'll take you just as you are. And if you are a train wreck here today, that's great. And if you have an especially good day, you're the exception. But anyway, that's great. (laughs) Because he will take you just as you are. You don't have to clean up for him. You don't have to dress a certain way for him. Nothing at all. But the church has that message. If you're going to come and be a part of us, you need to look like us. You need to dress a certain way. Get off the grass. So, Crossing, having been formed originally in 1978 as a church plant out of Davisville Church, we have, because of Pastor Otto, have a rich, rich history of making the gospel the big deal at our church. The clarity of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. Making sure that we talk about Jesus. Making sure we talk about that it is through Jesus alone that we're saved. Making sure that if you're ever going to be narrow about anything, that it's narrow about Jesus. That he is the only way 
to heaven. The model for our church for the first 28 years was kind of a come and see model. You know what I mean by that? It means that we do ministry on our campus in such a way that we invite everybody to come on our campus and to see Jesus and to meet Jesus right here. In, in, the, in the light of that, like we did a lot of concerts. You know, we'd invite people in to do concerts. Come and see this guy. Come and hear this guy sing. Come and hear this guy sing. We did Easter dramas. I mean, mega productions. Come and see the drama. Come and see this drama. We did secret services where someone would share their story and they'd do a skit. And the skits were all really well written. I still remember me and you, Michael Brees, rolling around the stage. You remember that? The New Age, the new age skit? Screaming, whoop, 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 whoop. That's right. It was the highlight of the skits here, all right? Yeah, no, that was not on YouTube. That was before YouTube, praise God. But then, and then there was Colonial Christmas. It started out through um, Ron and Marianne Murphy said in their small group, maybe we can do something to capitalize on history here in our area. And they started out that weekend, they had 30 or 40 people. And when it finally come and gone, we were doing 8,000 people in two days every year. And then even after we pulled the plug on it for four or five years, people were still calling and saying, when is Colonial Christmas? When is Colonial Christmas? It was a come and see model. And that one was very, very successful. But part of the problem with that is that we didn't want to become known as the church that did Colonial Christmas because Jesus was lost in that a little bit. We still wanted to be the church that talked about Jesus. So as difficult a decision as it was, I can remember the meeting downstairs in East Wing. I know Kevin and a few of you were there, and it was kind of like, this is the direction we're going, all right? And we all had to agree on it together. And then in the context of the change of leadership from 2004 to the 2006, the elders at that time and some senior leadership and all went through a season of, of listening and prayer and reading and considering what God would have us become as we came out of that. And during that time, one of us, someone, I don't know who it was, introduced us to a book called The Church of Irresistible Influence. We read some of it. We were talking about it. And this book was huge, huge, huge for me. Let me read to you this short excerpt. Can you imagine the community in which you live being genuinely thankful for your church? Can you imagine city leaders valuing your church's friendship and participation in the community, even asking for it? Can you imagine the neighborhoods around your church talking behind your back about how good it is to have you as a neighbor because of the tangible witness you've offered of God's love? Can you imagine a large number of your people actively engaged and passionate about community service, using their gifts and their abilities in ways at levels that they never thought of before? Can you imagine the community actually changing because of your involvement? Can you imagine the spiritual harvest that would follow if all this was true? And that became like a fire in our bones at that day and time. How do we move from being a come and see church to a go and shell church? The church model, so for so many years, the one I grew up in says, so you're interested in spiritual things? Well, come with me in church so that my pastor can tell you about it. And you know what we've said here for years, and you've heard me say it, the best place to show the gospel to someone is on your front porch or over your back fence. Don't bring them here to do that. That's your job to do out there. Nothing wrong with bringing them here, but that's your job to do out there. 
So in the context of, of what we were, we had no presence in the community. We didn't ever do Billy Graham. We didn't do Promise Keepers. We didn't partner with other churches like we've done with Good Friday Service or Youth Camps or Children Camps. And we began to change that. And so instead of doing Colonial Christmas where 8,000 people came to us, we now took all those resources and we said, okay, Brubaker, then you like doing this so much? Okay, you know, um, Colombo, you like doing this so much? Good. Then we're going to let you still dress up and play, but we're going to do it out there. State parks and Newtown Township and Newtown Borough call, and they say, this is our date. Can you come and be a part of what we do here? And so right now, there's already six events set up this year that our, our colonial militia is going to go into the community and do colonial ministry. Churches have too long been like that neighbor on your street that no one ever sees them outside their house except when they're coming and going. They never stop and say hi. They never stop and talk. Churches have been guilty of saying, we only want to talk to you about changing you and getting you saved. We're not worried about the homeless in your community. We're not worried about the kids hanging out in the block in your community. We're not really interested in anything in your world unless you want to talk about Jesus and getting saved. We have our agenda you need to step into it and be a part of it. The outcome of all that rethinking and reading the book and so many other things we did, we began to invite some people on campus that was part of our community, some needs that our community had that they were looking for places to meet and to be. And so our first support group was Al-Anon here on campus. And now we have somewhere like, I don't know, 16, 17, 20 different community groups that we've gone to them, and, or actually they've come to us now, and they've said, there's no place for us to meet. We meet a need in our community, but we don't have a place to meet, and so they meet here. It's one way that we take this thing about wanting to be a part of our community. We open up our campus, and they come here not for our purposes. They don't come here for our reasons. They don't come here because we want to tell them about Jesus, although we'll be glad to do that. We come here because our community has a need for an Al-Anon group, for a Naranon group, for a mental health group, for Boy Scouts, for Girl Scouts, for a theater group. Because we're interested in their needs as well as our own agenda for Jesus. So come on in. Come on in. We'll meet your needs. We're glad to do that. That's a part of us being a part of this community and meeting their needs, working with their agenda. But there was another dream that I had had for a while. And I, I, just didn't, I'm just not, I don't have the skill set I'm a, I'm a thinker. I'm not so much of a doer. I have to have other people do the doing often. And so I had this dream of us hosting these events where we would talk about an issue that was common to our community, that was broader than just our agenda, but was something that was affecting all of us, and that we could step into the fray and say, how do we be part of the solution? How do we do that? We want to be a part of the community, and we want to be a part of meeting the solutions of our community. And then God got Robert Whitley saved. And Robert starts bugging me. I want to meet with Matt Reintraub, the DA. I'm like going, I don't even know, why would we do this? I want to meet with, and then finally he's like going, are you going to go with me or not? That was the email, basically. Are you going to go with me or not? And I went, okay, all right, all right. And we go in and Matt says, we can do this, this, or this. And in that moment, I went, this this is the community forum idea that I've always thought about. This is it. 
of us stepping onto the platform in our community and beginning to address an issue that is community-wide and not just working with our agenda. And I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I had no idea what was going to come of all this. I just said yes. And so that spring, in April of that year, 2017, we hosted a forum up here of the chief of police and the DA and all these people in the area, and we talked about a community, an opioid forum. We had about 80 people here. And then later that year, we hosted the, 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 the bigger church, I mean the bigger opioid event, and there were about 150 people here that week. It was huge success. And then Robert has taken that and even expanded it further throughout the whole county where churches host events to address the opioid issues in their community. And then along came Ellen Jones, and Ellen was able to give us the horsepower and the, be able to, the, to keep us moving to address, in 2018, in the spring, a parent forum or a family forum for opioids. It was one of the best discussions of any kind I've ever been able to sit down on. It was outstanding. And then we hosted an event with Choice One, and then we hosted an event with Access Services on suicide training. All of those things were things I've always thought, this is what we want to be about. But all of those things were things that we started here and we reached out to the community and said, do you want to have this discussion? Can we host this discussion? So we had kind of started it, you know, those discussions, those things. And then a few weeks ago, I got this email. And this is from Matt Weintraub, the district attorney of Bucks County. Robert and Pastor Tim. He always calls me Pastor Tim. I still don't know how to feel about that. Robert and Pastor Tim, I have an idea for an all-hands-on-deck collaboration. I want you both to be involved in an initiative to pair church members with the children whose parents are suffering from substance use disorder and therefore could use a mentor. This would be run through the Big Brothers Big Sisters here in Bucks County. And then he goes, blah, 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 blah. But do you see what that email was for the very first time? The top cop the top leading official, there's no one who sits above this dude, of Bucks County came to a church and said, will you help? Will you help? And not only to us, he's going to churches. During the course of the meeting we went to, finally, he pointed at Robert, and he goes, I want you to use that network and all that. I want all that, get all them involved. And then he goes, is there a pastor's group you're part of, Pastor Tim? And I said, yes. And he goes, I said, actually, we meet in February. And then he pointed at me directly and goes, I want to be at that meeting. I felt like, okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> I haven't told the other guys about that yet, but I'm, we're, I'm still figuring that out. But I thought, like, am I going to say no? And what he talked about in that meeting was this, that, you know, and this is the thing. A lot of you says, I don't want to go to the opioid forum. What am I going to do? I don't have a kid strung out. I don't even know anyone strung out. What is there for me to do? I'm giving you something you can do now. They said that there are approximately 90,000 families in in Pennsylvania who have either one or both parents who are gone through overdose, imprisonment, or on the streets because of the opioid epidemic. And he said, and all that's falling on extended family, if there is extended family at all, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. And we're looking for ways to try and help these people out in the midst of this epidemic. And our thought is this. We have this thing called Big Brothers, Big Sisters, where we could take a mentor and plug a mentor into this family. 
and begin to help them in that way. It provides a little bit of respite. It provides that other voice. Because you all know if you have kids, as the parent, you're the dumbest person on earth, but anyone else can say anything to them, and they're going to run out and do it, right? So let's take a mentor and plug a mentor into these families and, and provide a positive relationship. He said the average age of our kids, they call them the littles, the average age of littles are 12 years old. We have over 200 on the waiting list. 60% of them are guys. The average age of our bigs is 44. You can be a big starting at age 18. He says, my oldest big is 78. None of the children in the program are in trouble right now, and that's the point. They want to keep them out of trouble. He said that when we plug kids in with a big brother or big sister, their grades go up, their self-esteem goes up, their decision-making goes up. 69% of the kids get some form of aid, but we have kids who come from Upper Makefield and Buckingham just as well. He called them from the McMansions. They currently serve 500 children in 2018. They want to serve another 100 this year, a total of 600 children. That's what they hope for. Next Sunday at the community fair, we've invited big brothers and big sisters to be here for anyone who would like to talk to them and find out more about this. They will do, they do background checks. They do an orientation. They do training about how to talk to them about the difficult issues that perhaps they're going through. And all that is something they've come to us and they said, will you as the local church step into this and help us out here? I hope that you get a sense of just how huge that is. That through Robert's work and through other local churches, we've kind of come to this place in our community where now all of a sudden we've said we want to be about more than just us. We want to be about the community at large. How can we do this? And now they've responded and said, do this. It's my prayer that this church will respond large. It's my prayer that this church family gets the big picture and understands what we're talking about and understands the impact of being invited out to step into the problems of other people. Some of the passages that I've, I've come across and I've thought, and I've thought about us in this way is like from Matthew 5, 16, where it says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's just rewrite that for our purposes here today and say, In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and actually take you seriously and praise your Father in heaven. Titus 3.8, where he says, this is a trustworthy statement. Anytime Paul says that, he wants you to pay attention to it. He says, this is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believe God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, let us, become, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will, read a har- we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. As we step into the community and engage in the issues of our community, being in our community like that gives a megaphone to the gospel. Folks who criticize us for not living up to our words might just pay a little bit of attention when when they begin to find out that this church had 20 people show up and be a part of Big Brothers Big Sisters and start having a positive influence 
in children's life. And that church did as well, and that church did as well. And every church begins to play their role in the community outside of their building. That the community begins to say, you know what? I know that those guys are kind of messed up, and I know they do a lot of dumb stuff, but they do some smart stuff sometimes too. And let me be really, really clear here that Acts Acts 4.12 is still our heart. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. There is no other name. We're not telling people that you can get saved by doing good deeds. That's not the message. The message is saying that we do good deeds because Jesus saved us and he compels us to be involved in other people's lives. That's the message. In the early 1900s, there was a move such as this where churches began to get concerned with society and with the social needs at that time. And as they began to step into that realm, they began to leave the gospel on the back shelf. And they began to only come in and feed the hungry and, 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 and put homeless people into shelters. They began to do all that, but they forgot to ever speak about Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. We don't want to repeat that message. What we want to do is love people right where they are, for who they are, just like they are, and that love be one that brings those conversations up. That one that brings those places where people say, you say you're a Christian, and I, I think I actually maybe see it in you. And you step into those moments, and you get to talk about Jesus and the love he has for any and everyone. I want to close with comments that are not mine at all. They're from John Ortberg in his book, Who is This Man? And he's speaking of the influence of Jesus of all history. So this, my closing comments here are really loosely adopted from his message on this because it is just so golden that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pretend to have been this smart. You know me better than that anyway. He says it like this. He says, It was the church under the leadership of Jesus that first sought together men and women from every economic, social, ethnic, and national origin that included both men and women and placed them on equal footing in the church. That had never been suggested ever before. Women were second-grade citizens. They weren't worthy of education. They were not worthy of status. They were property. And, and, And everyone got treated differently. But it was Jesus who stepped into the middle of this. And in, like, in, for instance, in, in Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28, where he said that all are one in Christ Jesus. It was Jesus who talked about all people being equal and not being different and not, shouldn't be allowed to be treated differently. It was the first century historian Seneca who wrote of the common practice of killing weak babies and female babies because it was Jesus who said, let the little ones come to me. And the result of that movement to save those babies, those little girl babies, and keep that in mind for everyone who says the church hates women, it was the church who began to save those female babies. Just keep that in mind. The result of that value in those local churches resulted in orphanages that are commonplace now, but they started with the churches. In the first two centuries, there was a major epidemic who came in and wiped out nearly 25% of the total population of the day. It was the church who heeded the teaching of their master when he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And so the church began to go out and pick up the sick out of the streets who had been dumped there by their families. 
and been left there. It was the church who stepped out and began to pick them up off this, out of the streets at their own risk and bring them back and nurse them back to health. And that's the reason why today our local hospital is called St. Mary's and St. Christopher's and St. Luke's. That's why the leading first aid emergency rescue organization in the world is called the Red Cross because it grew out of the church. Education was for the elite and the elite alone. But with the advent of the church, men and women and children all began to want to read what had been written about Jesus. And so all of a sudden, women were educated. All children began to educate. Slaves were educated. And this nation here, 92% of all universities before the Civil War were faith-based. The very first school started in the United States in 1635 in New England, in Massachusetts, was started so that children everywhere, everywhere, could learn how to read so they could read their Bibles. It was not an egalitarian thing. It was, I mean, it wasn't only for the rich. It was for everyone. Look at the inspiration of the church on art, the Sistine Chapel, Handel's Messiah. Consider government. Democracy, perhaps the greatest form of government, began with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Don't, Don't get me wrong. The church is not the only people who show compassion. Matter of fact, there are times when we're incredibly weak in it. But the church said in showing compassion. Matter of fact, there's, you, know, you, you just watch our government system right now. If they, they're talking, they keep eating away at it, about taking away the tax status of, not, of charitable organizations, especially faith-based ones, and taking away the tax benefit of giving to these organizations. Well, but you need to think through, and you need to know this, and you're not going to read this in the newspapers, but the only people who are probably still in Houston, the only people who are still in South Florida, the people who stay after the first month and are involved in emergency you know, restoration are the churches. It's Samaritan's Purse. It's all of those organizations that are a part of the evil, bad church that are still down there doing this work. Everyone else goes in and gets their photo op and does their business and then goes on to the next thing. It's the churches that come and stay and do the work. And New Orleans and Houston and all those places would be a different place if the church had not come in and been a part of restoration after their disasters. So we don't get it right, not by a long shot. But you read about things, actually you don't read about them very much either, do you? About when Chick-fil-A opens on a Sunday to feed people who just went through a shooting in their city. You don't read about that much, but it happens. He says we have to consider this. 
that Jesus is the Lord of lords. There's no other Lord beyond him. That Jesus is the King of kings. There's no other king beyond him. That Jesus is the hinge of history. Did you catch this? Jesus, that, they, that all the kings that have ever come, all the rulers have ever come, every dictator has ever been come, they've been, they marked their birthdays, not by their birthday, but by the birthday of Jesus. Do you get that? Napoleon does. Stalin does. Donald Trump does. His birthday is pegged off the birthday of Jesus Christ. My birthday is 1960 A.D., the year of our Lord is what that means. Every birthday of every ruler has always been pegged to the birthday of Jesus. So there is none greater than him. He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He's the inspiration of the despairing. He's the greater te- greatest teacher that ever taught. He's the greatest thinker that ever thought. He's been given the, he gave the greatest gifts to mankind. He began the greatest movement ever known. And mankind must marvel at this man. And the question is, who will carry on his work? Will you be that man? Will you be that woman that will pick up your cross and carry the movement into your personal world, into the relationships that God has placed in your life on a daily basis? Will you serve where he has placed you? Will you love the ones that are unlovable? Will you love the ones that are hard to love? Will you love the ones that no one else wants to love? Will you step into that space and fill it because Jesus sent you there? There are many who are convinced that the church hates them. There are many who are convinced that the church has overlooked them. They're lying on our streets. They're all over the place. And the only way we change that message is by stepping into the space around them and filling it with the message that Jesus loves you. Even if you don't believe it, even if you don't think you've heard it from the church before, it's true. That message goes out best because I speak it here on a Sunday morning, but because you speak it every day where you are. That's how the message goes out. That's how the movement continues on. Because of what you do day in and day out. Will you pick up your cross and be a part of that movement and continue it on? Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you and we acknowledge you as being above and beyond all that we could fathom. We acknowledge that you have given us a mission that we have so often fumbled with. We so often have not done well with. And yet you still choose to use us. It's simply incredible. Father, today we pray that you would burden our hearts with that place that we should be in our own world. Whether it's with big brothers, big sisters, or wherever it may be. But that you will help us as a local church and as local Christians to step into the space around us and continue the work that you've begun through your birth and your life and your death and your resurrection. May we be found tired and exhausted and worn out because of our service for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.